Good evening, everyone. My name is uh, George Gaskell, and uh, I'm a pro-director here at the uh, LSE. So, ladies and gentlemen, young ladies and young gentlemen, a very warm welcome to uh, not quite the ivory tower, but uh, the LSE. Now, this is the uh, hors d'oeuvre, so to speak, to the uh, school's fourth literary festival, the main courses of which are described in this little pamphlet, which you may like to have a look at. There'll be some in the uh, back after this uh, session. And the uh, main courses are served from next Wednesday. And uh, <coughs> I would also very much like to welcome you to this uh, evening where LSE and First Story combine together in a prize-giving event and a debate on fantasy and reality. Now this event marks the uh, fourth uh, year of our creative writing competition for schools and for two years we've been running this in conjunction with uh, First Story, a charity that supports and inspires creativity, literacy and talent. And we are privileged and delighted <coughs> to welcome two of First Story's founding directors this evening, the author William Fines and uh, who's speaking on our panel, and Katie Walgrave, who's going to chair the discussion. So in a moment, I'll hand over to Katie, who's going to chair this discussion debate on fantasy and reality. But uh, let me just tell you what else is going to happen. After the debate, there will be a short prize-giving presentation for the 12 shortlisted entrants, whose work has been printed in a rather splendid little anthology which my colleagues and I read this afternoon and uh, we were just amazed at the quality of the, uh, of the prose. It's absolutely delightful and it looks really super. Uh, there will be uh, some prizes for three key stage winners. Of course you don't know who you are yet so it's a nervous wait. And then following the presentations there's a reception outside. Now, of course, we don't um, uh, do these things out of uh, pure charity. There's always a hidden agenda. And the hidden agenda here is uh, perhaps that uh, we hope the uh, young visitors and their teachers will very much enjoy this trip to the LSE, have a look around, and that might even persuade you to think of uh, the LSE when you come to decide on your choice of university. Uh, in this institution, we uh, do rather well at the social sciences in terms of teaching and research, but on uh, culture and literature, we're a bit thin. So a few more folks, as the ones who've been writing these splendid pieces, as students in this institution, would be greatly welcome. So do bear us in mind, and if you can uh, promote the LSE in your schools, uh, we'd be more than grateful. So, without further ado, may I welcome Katie Walgrave, who's going to take us into fantasy and a bit of reality. Katie. Thank you very much. It's fantastic to see so many people here for this. Can you hear me, by the way? That okay? Can you look back? Great. Um, for the, what promises to be a really interesting discussion, we were just saying upstairs, you know, what, what, what's, what's the role? And I said, we should, we've got to have a big fight, you know, fantasy versus reality. Which one's better? And they were all saying, no, 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 not going to fight. But I think there is a little bit of a fight because the writers here today uh, do 
all write in different ways, and it would be, be interesting to, particularly when we open to the floor, your questions, your thoughts about fantasy and, and, and fiction. I'm going to start just by introducing the incredible lineup of writers that we've got here. So, um, in the order in which they're going to speak, there's Philip Womack, who um, has written several, two, two novels now, which um, you may, may well have read, and I guess it would be fair to describe them as being more in the fantasy, fantasy genre, the, the Liberators in the other book. Um, then we've got Meg Rossoff, who's going to be speaking next, and I'm sure that many, many of you have read her book. She's won so many prizes, I'm not even going to pretend I can remember them all, but the Carnegie Award and uh, Guardian Guild, and, yeah, it's all very illustrious <laughs> and weird. It's very exciting. Um, and I don't know, would you describe yourself as a fantasy or something? Ah. Perhaps not exactly real, but also that. Mm -hmm. we'll, we'll hear, we'll wait, we'll see. Um, then Caroline Bird, who is one of this country's not only most brilliant poets, but also most sickeningly young, brilliant poets, which makes every bit. What age were you when your first book of poetry was published? 15. So, you know, if you're 16, you're already old. Yeah. So get on with it. <laughs> um, and again, has won so many prizes. Their last collection of books, poems was called Watering Can and Each Dog and Bikes. Brilliant. Uh, on which note, by the way, after this, I think the books are all going to be for sale. So do go and, do go and browse and get some signed and that kind of thing. And finally, William Pines, with whom um, I set up the story. And William is. Certainly, I would say, in the, in the reality, if we were going to have to divide and try and make a fight, um, Will has written two, two completely beautiful books, um, which are not exactly autobiographical, but are memoirish, that sort of that sort of genre. If you haven't read them, you ought to. Also, will be on sale, first for the Smoogies, and then the Music Room more recently. Um, it was suggested, and I think it's a great idea, that we just start with a, a show of hands of who reckons that they would... Who reckons if they were given the choice of two books and they didn't know anything about them except that one was a fantasy and one was perhaps more sort of real fiction, if you know what I mean? Who, who would pick the fantasy, Harry Potter, something like that? And who would pick um, a more real book? Oh, quite evenly split, it'd be interesting. Yeah. I'd yeah. say a bit more real, which is, which, is, which is really interesting and something I'm sure that will get picked up on which... which so I'm not going to talk anymore because I don't know anything about anything, but these people do. So we're going to start with Philip, and what the idea is each person's just going to talk for sort of five minutes, and then we'll see if, if it turns into a bit of a conversation along the way, then I think that's probably fine. Then, they'll, then we'll see if there's any themes that come out of that, but then very quickly we'll go over to any questions, any thoughts. So as you're listening, if you haven't already thought of a question, as you're listening, if they make you come up with an idea, or if you're just curious about asking a question about why do they write the way they do or anything, then stick your hand up at the end and we'll have a kind of conversation amongst us all. So, thank you very much, Katie. Can you all hear me? Okay. Um, I'm going to start by arguing that without fantasy, we're nothing. We're born with fantasy. Fantasy is actually what makes us human. From the very moment that we come into this cold and lonely universe, we people the world around us with things that we can't see, can't prove with our empirical senses. For centuries, for thousands of years, we filled the universe with spirits, with monsters, with gods. They're not empty superstitions, but they're valid responses that tell us a lot about who we are, about how we learn, and about how we exist. We're born in the darkness, so we make the darkness come alive. Our very first stories are intertwined with fantasy. The epic of Gilgamesh, 
which was written in the 18th century BC, sees its hero battling monsters, being seduced by a goddess, and seeking immortality. There's hardly room for reality there. There is hardly room for reality in the Iliad or the Odyssey, the two poems that stand at the cornerstone of literature. In the Iliad, you can hardly move for, go- for goddesses coming down to earth to check on their mortal offspring. Achilles, the greatest fighter of the Greeks, had Thetis, a sea goddess, for his mother. He had immortal horses who could speak, who prophesied the future, who, who, who wept with the foreknowledge of his own death. Sarpedon, the son of Zeus himself, was slain in battle and carried off by sleep and death and the whole sky rained black with the tears of his divine father. It was so common to have a god in the world as a parent in the world of the Iliad that it was almost harder to find someone who didn't. The Odyssey. The Odyssey is a repository of some of the most fantastical images that we have that have entered into our everyday discourse. Who hasn't heard of the one-eyed cyclops, the monstrous Scylla and Charybdis, the deathly song of the sirens? These supernatural elements are an essential part of these poems. The Aeneid, Virgil's great poem about the foundation of Rome, weaves the supernatural into the everyday. This is a world in which ships can turn into nymphs, a world in which you can be walking in a forest talking to a girl, the next minute she turns into the goddess Venus. Even Lucan, who wrote a weighty and incredibly dull poem about the Roman civil war, (laughs) had corpses coming to life and witches. And it wasn't just poetry. Apuleius, the Roman prose writer, wrote a great comic fantasy novel about a donkey, oh no, the other way around, about a man turning into a donkey. (laughs) Cicero, a lawyer not known for his fantastical turn of mind, um, wrote a fantasy himself in which he was led up to the sky to see the Temple of Venus. It's not a question of belief. We don't know whether the Greeks and the Romans actually believed in their gods. But we do know that these supernatural elements are symbols of how rich life is, of how inventive we are, and of how we make sense of this baffling world. We don't have these symbols because life is boring. If life were boring, we would have nothing. We would be scrabbling around in the dark with no words, no pictures. All great writers have a sense of the fantastical. The first poem in the English language, The Dream of the Rude, sees its narrator talking to the cross on which Christ was uh, was crucified. Chaucer, a man who wrote so convincingly about real life that even today his characters burst from the page. Even he wrote fantasies. No discussion of fantasy and reality can take place without reference to a playwright you'll probably all have heard of, Shakespeare. There isn't time to talk about all of his plays here, but they're all imbued with the sense that fantasy is part of who we are. The witches in Macbeth, the ghost in Hamlet, Lear gibbering on the heath, twins disguised, statues coming to life, men and women thrown onto strange shores with nothing but a dream. Even writers who are associated with the real are essentially fantasists. Jane Austen, who wrote with her ivory brush about Regency life, is essentially a fantasist, presenting a world in which all will be well. Dickens, you will hear a lot about this year, it's his centenary. Dickens wrote about Victorian life, life in the slums, but his characters are so grotesque that they would not be able to exist in reality. And when it comes to non-fiction, when you're writing about life, you can't escape uh, fantasy. You can try to reflect reality as far as possible, 
But this relies on our memories, and our memories are fallible. Words are fallible. We make up stories about ourselves. Our honesty is compromised even by our choice of vocabulary, even by our perspective. There are so many books at the moment that tap into this rich source of fantasy. Books about werewolves, vampires, boy wizards. But all of these books feed back into these deep layers of our consciousness. You can't escape it. Writing is fantasy. Fantasy is reality. Thank you. Everybody got a pen <laughs> or a pencil or a pin so you could write in blood. <laughs> all right, now <clears throat> I want you to take notes because I'm going to test you all on these these later. Everything I'm about to read you is absolutely 100% true. Okay, you ready? If the sun were made of bananas, it would be just as hot. On that. Mm -hmm. Queen Elizabeth I passed a law forcing everyone except the nobility to wear a flat cap on Sundays. All the matter that makes up the human race could fit into a sugar cube. Obviously, if we were all squashed together. <laughs> As a result of his strong Puritan impulses, the Liberal Prime Minister William Gladstone kept a selection of whips in his cellar with which he regularly chastised himself. <laughs> Moral purists in the Middle Ages believed that women's ears should be covered because the Virgin Mary had conceived a child through her ear. <laughs> Attila the Hun was a dwarf. The Hundred Years' War lasted 116 years. The magic word abracadabra was originally intended for the specific purpose of curing hay fever. <laughs> Hindu men believed it to be unlucky to marry for a third time, but they could avoid misfortune by marrying a tree first. The tree was then burnt, freeing him to marry again. Topless saleswomen are legal in Liverpool, England, but only in tropical fish stores. Charlie Chaplin once won third prize in a Charlie Chaplin look-alike contest. <laughs> Porcupines float in water. In Kentucky, it is illegal to carry a concealed weapon more than six feet long. <laughs> I had to think about that one for a minute. I'm going to read you the last one, which I had to think about for a very long time. But this I found on a site about uh, astrophysics. 
listen carefully. According to the current standard model of cosmology, the observable universe containing all the billions of galaxies and trillions upon trillions of stars is just one of an infinite number of universes existing side by side like soap bubbles in foam. Wait, that's just the beginning. Because they are infinite, every possible history must have been played out. But the number of, number of possible histories on Earth is finite because there have been a finite number of events with a finite number of outcomes. The number is huge, but finite. Which means that this exact event where I am sitting here reading these words to you and you are listening must have happened an infinite number of times. Hands up everyone who understands that. <laughs> God, you guys are better than I am. All I'm going to add to that list of things I've just read you is, with reality like this, who needs fantasy? Yeah. <laughs> you didn't want to fight? It's a great debate to speak. Thank you. Um, Caroline. What does it mean to fantasize? When I was 16, uh, I went on this playwriting course, and the first lesson, my tutor, who was a guy called Simon Stevens, he asked us all to get into pairs and write down a list of all the things we could think of that separated human beings from animals, right down to the most pedantic thing you could possibly think of. And we were there going, humans go to restaurants. <laughs> and uh, eventually he was like, no, 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 listen. A dog uh, isn't in a park chase, chasing a stick, imagining a bigger park somewhere. With a, with a better stick, and maybe a lake, and the sun higher in the sky. Fantasizing, as, as Philip said, is, is part of, is integral, integral to what it means to be human. We are defined by our dreams and our imaginings just as much as we are by the actual events that have occurred to us. Um, recently I did an interview, uh, or I was asked a question about a poem I'd written. It was called, a poem called Breakup Party, and it was set in a, at a drinks gathering in a house where the roof had been blown off. And the interviewer said to me, bizarrely, um, how much of this poem comes from direct personal experience? <laughs> and, uh, and how much of it is from uh, uh, fantasy, uh, surrealism, etc.? Um, and I find this question very annoying, because a writer can only ever write from his or her experience. You know, I've never, I've never been in anyone's head but mine. I'm the only person I've ever been, right? And even though I've physically not stood in a house um, where the roof has been bl blown off, sipping a drink, I've definitely had that experience. I mean, I've definitely had the experience described in that metaphor. You know, which brings me on to talking about surrealism, right? I've never, um, I've never written a poem about uh, vampires or wizards, but I've, I have poems that feature leprechauns, fairies, gingerbread houses, laughing ducks, a colony of uh, bullies who live on the moon, blah, 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 blah. But uh, they're not really about fairies and leprechauns. Um, that's just a vehicle. For example, I'll, I'll, do, I'll do your poem. <laughs> it's called The Fairy is Bored with Her Garden. The fairy is bored with her garden, bored with flying around, bored with twinkling, Bored with having sex with drunk people, just because they make good promises. 
They work so hard to get her. They smoke and swallow and knock them back. They say, this time, I'm not leaving. They stroke her trembling ears. Every night she elopes, expectant, sincere, brimful of believing. And every morning she crawls back to her garden and tangles her bent wings, sticks her head in the bird bath. Her lovers always insist on coming down. The bright eyes last night that stared right at her become staid, serious, look right through her. Sometimes they're not drunk, sometimes they're crazy. She gets treated like a symptom. They take blinding pills and stop returning calls. The fairy likes the drunks, likes the crazies. She's aroused by the feverish, those hot and brief affairs. But the lonely, they really kill her with their coffee and their realism and their not coming out to play. When she masturbates, and fairies often do. She dreams of losing herself on worn carpets, stained fingers, the sad and suffocating love of the lonely. The fairy is bored with her garden, bored with her lip gloss, her wind chimes, her tiny, shiny singing voice. She wants someone who doesn't need enticing, who finds her somewhat dull and ordinary, who picks her sequins off the pillow with disdain, drapes her with a heavy arm. She wants snores that rip the darkness, darkness that leaves in the morning, ripe, huge bodies that remain. The fairy wants to groan, to fart, to stay for breakfast. The fairy wants to be ripe and huge. Um, <laughs> a story set in a council house isn't necessarily any more real than uh, a story set in a world populated, populated by giants like the BFG or um, Transylvania. You know, the, there is only honest writing and dishonest writing. You know, there's not real things and unreal things, you know, um, and the, uh, different writers have different approaches to how, how they can connect to what feels real to them. For instance, when I was, when I was a teenager, I was about 13, for um, about six months I kept a diary, right, and I was kind of like religious about it. I wrote down every event that had happened to me, the feelings connected to every single event, and then I would read back on it and feel so dissatisfied because... It never sounded like me, like I sounded more whiny than I was, or I, or I sounded less, you know, like, I, I, I don't know, more, more flippant than I actually felt, or, you know, because the truth isn't necessarily the sum of events, right? Um, and, I mean, one of the reasons why I think we're having this discussion in the first place is there's a kind of, like, in, anxiety a little bit um, in, amongst um, uh, teachers who, who teach poetry workshops about, about uh, the amount of vampire stories and wizard stories that are, that are being written and this, this, I mean this um, discussion has the sentence uh, do we not find real life interesting anymore right but that's the question of like well are people writing about vampires because it's fashionable or because it actually comes from their that's what comes from their heart and their guts you know um, I mean one of the reasons why vampires... I mean, I don't think that the, the, Twilight, the Twilight series is necessarily a literary masterpiece. Um, but there's something about vampires that has caught the public imagination. You know? uh, also, I remember asking my little brother, why do you like Harry Potter? And his answer was five words. Because he is a wizard. Because <laughs> you know? it sim symbolises strength and magic and power and... And obviously, like Bram Stoker's Dracula, you know, the original vampire, it's all about sex, 
isn't it? Like, it's about, um, you know, tr- uh, exchanging bodily fluids with you know, h- half-unconscious girls in flimsy nightdresses. <laughs> I mean, <clears throat> what's not to like? I mean, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, <laughs> and so, <laughs> but, so writing about vampires doesn't necessarily, you know, mean that you're not interested in your own life. But if, if, if as a teacher, we get um, 10 identical vampire stories, the problem is not the subject matter. Right? Because, for instance, like Roald Dahl's The Witches has absolutely nothing in common with Arthur Miller's The Crucible, right? even though they both are around witchcraft. Because if something is written with truth and, and by an original voice and it has something to say, that vampire story will always be totally one of a kind. Right? Um, so if you want to write about vampires, <laughs> then it's about finding your own personal truth within that framework. Um, and for the poem. Thank you. Will, do you want to round that? I feel, is this working? I feel a bad participant in a debate because basically I really agree with Philip, Caroline, and Meg. And I'm not quite sure even which side I'm on. It reminds me recently I heard on the radio. There's a writer called Joanna Trollope, and for some reason she was on the radio with her mother, and her mum was quite elderly, and I heard her mum saying, you know, the competitive instinct's never been that strong in me. I always forget what side I'm on at singles in tennis. (laughs) (laughs) I'm feeling a little bit like her at the moment, because uh, I adore fantasy, but I also adore books that are grounded in reality. My books that I've written are really about my own life and drawn from my own life but I think there's a lot of dreaming and imagination in them in the way that I choose the images that I write about and the way that I the way that the words and the figures of comparison that I choose to convey those images and those experiences but if people ask me what my favorite books are in the kind of list of books I'll reel off two of them in the top six will be real fantasy books, both by an Italian writer called Italo Calvino, who I hope you'll all read one day. Um, I love a book of his called The Baron in the Trees, and it's about this Italian boy called Cosimo, and he's about 12, and it starts off with him having dinner with his parents in a house in the woods in northern Italy. And his sisters cooked some snails for dinner. It's a kind of regional speciality. And Cosimo, is he really puts his foot down, I'm sure you, like me, have had situations like this when you just don't want to eat what your mum and dad have cooked for you. He doesn't want to eat the snails, and he says no, and he stamps his foot, and they say, you've got to eat the snails, you've got to eat the snails, and he keeps stamping his foot and saying, I'm not going to eat the snails. And he has a bit of a tantrum, and he runs out of the house and climbs up an oak tree that's planted just outside the house. And they live in the forest, so the, the oak tree is part of a huge forest in northern Italy. And Cosimo just decides that he's not going to come down. He stays living up in the trees. And until he dies at about in his late 60s. He lives up in the trees, he makes friends up in the trees, he falls in love up in the trees, he finds other people who live up in the trees. It's the most wonderful story. There's another book by Italo Calvino called Cosmic Comics. It's a collection of short stories. And the first story is called The Distance of the Moon. And the narrator, who seems to have been alive in the whole of human history, no, the whole of cosmological history, He says that actually the moon used to be much closer to us than it is now. 
In fact, if you went out to sea at high tide, the moon was so close that you could jump, you could climb up the mast and jump onto the surface of the moon. And when you got onto the surface of the moon, the surface was covered, the sort of whiteness of the moon was this strange kind of moon milk that was incredibly delicious and nice. And the narrator and his friends would go and jump up onto the moon every night and they would bring back buckets of this moon milk. It's, it's an absolutely brilliant story and you believe it the way you believe the barren in the trees because it's grounded in real people and real feelings and real emotions. And in fact, The Distance to the Moon is a story about love. The narrator is in love with somebody else's wife. She's the publican's wife. And the publican's wife is in love with the moon. And she stays on the moon. And as the tides start pushing the moon away from the earth, um, they've got to decide whether to jump back down from the moon before it gets too far away. And the publican's wife, she's going to stay on the moon. And the narrator of the story he kind of wants to stay with the publican's wife on the moon, but that means he'll never be able to come back down to earth. So it's this terrible sort of story of longing and love and attachment. And these are all real emotions. It's about real psychology, even though it's in the context of this immense fantasy. And I think that's the power in writing and the power of fantastical writing. And Philip's quite right to talk about those wonderful stories in all of our history, like the Iliad and like the Odyssey. But one of the reasons that they're so compelling and so engaging for all of us is that the gods in the Iliad and the gods in the Odyssey behave exactly like the human beings we all know. They're jealous of each other, they fight, they feud, they fall in love with each other, they have longings and hopes and fears. It's grounded, the characterization even of the gods is grounded in real life and real psychology. Think about um, the way Harry Potter begins. Mr and Mrs Dursley lived of number four, Privet Drive, Privet Drive. It's, it's the real world, it's a suburban street, it's something we all recognise. And what's so thrilling about Harry Potter is that it's just, a, the fantasy of it is just around the corner from real life. The same is true of Philip Pullman's Northern Lights in the Dark Materials book. It starts off in an Oxford that's sort of a real Oxford, but then it's around the corner from real life. Alice, to get into the Wonderland, has to go through an actual mirror. To get into Narnia, you've got to go in through an actual wardrobe. You have to go in through the real world. I spent quite a lot of t time in schools trying to encourage young people to write, because I think writing is a wonderful thing, a really exciting thing. And I remember the number of times when I'd gone in and said, um, we're going to write stories. I really want you to write your own, in your own voice, whatever's in your head, and be excited about that. And sometimes I remember a boy called Manvir saying to me that he wanted to write a story about an intergalactic war between tribes of rival space pandas. <laughs> and I told Manvir that that would be absolutely fine, but he has to ground it in some recognisable real detail. The psychology, we have to recognise these people. If it's totally detached from reality, it's not going to mean anything to us. And I think there's a tendency maybe among young writers, maybe at the start of their careers as writers, the way many of you in this room are, to think that your own lives, your own environments are boring and, and not worth talking about and not worth telling stories about. And that for a story to be compelling and suspenseful and exciting, it's got to be full of vampires and wizards and giants and monsters. And it really doesn't. You can put those things in, but start at the kitchen table in your own house, because that's where the drama is. And then you can fly to the moon. Then you can go anywhere. So I suppose what I'm saying is that fantasy really 
is of limited value if it isn't connected to your real lives, which is where all the richness and the value is. Thank you. so much for trying to make you fight. You all have made the most wonderfully articulate, but also agreeing with another kinds of, kind of speeches. But I wanted to pick up, perhaps, just before we go to some questions, on something that Will was saying, discussing at the end there, about our writing. And part of the reason we're here today is to celebrate the, the, the book that some of you in this room have, have written, and, and thinking about ourselves and yourselves as, as writers. So, Scoot, if you were to write a story now, and somebody said, you've got to write a story or a poem, would, could we have another show of hands? Do you think you would prefer to write something which is fantasy, you know, numbers or whatever, something that's fantastical? Put your hands up if you think it would be fantasy. And put your hands up if you think it would be real, based in probably your life or a life that's close to yours. So it's kind of half and half. Well, I wondered, I mean, I think we've got from the talks quite a clear demonstration of what certainly Caroline and Will would think about this. But I wondered, at this stage in people's lives, perhaps at any stage, at the beginning of a writer's career, what, what would you maybe recommend <coughs> that people write? How would, how would you approach this question of fantasy? Do you have any? I can, I can answer that. Go for it. I know, I'll thank you for that. I think it's a really weird question in a way to say, if you were going to write a story right now, what would you write? I don't think you know what you're going to write until you sit down to write it. And I actually had to write a... Um, uh, it was a slightly long short story for a little book that my publisher wanted to put out for their anniversary. And I panicked about it for weeks. I thought, oh God, I've got nothing. I don't know what I'm going to write. I have no ideas. It's going to be absolutely rubbish. And then as a, the deadline got closer and closer, I sat down and I thought, ah, I know. I'm supposed to be a writer for teenagers. <clears throat> I'm going to write about teenage pregnancy. So I wrote, I started <laughs> writing a book about a girl, a 17-year-old girl who um, gives birth to a moose baby. Um, and I had no idea I was going to write about a moose baby. I never thought about a moose baby before. Um, but it turned out to be really funny. It made me laugh. Um, but I had no idea it was going to be, that's what it was going to be about until I sat down to write it. So I think a lot of the time, and, and that's something that, you know, you're always taught in school. Now, you mustn't pick up your pen until you've planned out the story. <laughs> Any English teachers here? <laughs> yeah, all right, you guys. I'm afraid you'll have to go to the back of the room. <laughs> um, and, and of course, you know, it's quite good to learn to write in, in a way by thinking about structure. And, and most writers have a kind of inbuilt idea of how structure works. But I would say most writers and everybody here, I don't know, um, probably doesn't plan out there. I certainly don't plan out my books. I have no clue what I'm going to write. I write a first sentence, and then I think, ooh, that's interesting. I wonder where that'll take me. Do, do you guys plan? I don't. I, I, don't. I, I, tend to, I tend to see it in my head as a kind of almost like a film in a way, but I, I don't know the actual details. You know, so yeah. I'll sort of start with a scene, and then it will usually, I hope, follow on to the next. But isn't that one of the really exciting yeah. things yeah. about writing is how you surprise yourself? Mm. There are little dimensions and rooms inside your mind and your imagination that you weren't really aware were there before you sat down to write this story. But I think we all find, and actually it's, it's in, you know, from the outside, you know, Meg is an incredibly successful writer and, and has written uh, five, six, six books. Oh, yeah. uh, it's so annoying how many books she's written. I want to write that many. But... Um, uh, to hear Meg say that it's you know hard for her to sit at a blank page and come up with something, I think that everybody in here should should sort of take heart from that because it's 
we all find it a bit difficult sometimes. And to be faced with a blank page and be told to write a story is a little bit terrifying. And I think that's why a lot of us who are interested in going and sort of writing with young people, a lot of the things we try and do is sort of take away that fear by giving something a starter, some yeah. kind of constraint. That's the weird thing, that you think if you constrain yourself, that's an inhibition on your freedom, and you're not going to be so free to imagine. And actually, the constraint allows you to be free and allows you to imagine. Um, you know, sometimes I, 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 may, I would ask you to give me sort of five or six random letters of the alphabet, and we might end up with L, P, O, A, D. And then you'd have to write a story where the first five words of that story begin with those letters in that sequence. You might think that's really hard, but it will take you somewhere that you never imagined you would go. And, and, and then after that, you can, I promise you, you can go anywhere. You don't have to follow any, any letters after that. But that's the strange thing, is that the blank page is very frightening. And I'm talking too much now, but um, I'll just go on a little bit more. Because I think that that blank page and the f how frightening that blank page is, is maybe one of the reasons that young writers tend to resort to kinds of writing that they feel safe in, because they've read other books that are like that. So they write about wizards or vampires or you know, things that they think are stories. Um, and, that's, and, and, and it's a way of it's a way of not being so afraid because you're reproducing something that you've already seen as being a story. In fact, the real drama and the real, what's exciting for a reader is an original voice, mm -hmm. is an original story. And that's all going to come from you being yourselves and not writing just because the way other people write like that, but writing what's in your head and in your voice and in your heart. I, I just want to, sorry. Uh, I was just going to kind of back up what, you, what Meg was saying about that um, writing, well, writing a poem is a process of setting yourself up for an accident, right? Yes. Truth is something that you've got to stumble upon, upon. You know, it's like trying to hold a bubble. If you go like that, then the bubble's going to burst. So you can't, you can't reach into the middle of it. Um, and uh, you kind of have to wander down the hallways of your own poem. And, and also to back up kind of what Will was saying, like a golden rule of writing is never be afraid of writing rubbish. Yeah. I mean, because like you, a sculptor, you know, doesn't uh, needs mar the marble, you know, before you can start chipping into it. You need, you can, know, your raw material. You don't have to sit down and write this pearl of amazingness immediately. You know, we that's not what we do. <laughs> that's not that's all right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I told them there'd be a fight. <laughs> yeah, that's not what we do. But um, um, but I was going to say about. To, to reiterate, if you do want to write about vampires, I, I don't necessarily think that you, you can't put your own story in that. Because, like I said, you know, um, if if you are coming from a place of reality, it's always going to be totally new. I mean, I remember when I was when I was fifteen, right? I'd moved to school from Leeds to London, and uh, and I, I, would, I had my first day at school. I had to wear a little grey skirt, and I hated it. And I remember coming home, and I was all wound up and angry, and I didn't know what anyone wanted from me, and uh, and I sat down because I wanted to write, and I was like writing like I don't know what to do, and it was like really boring. Um, so I started thinking about the leprechaun at the end of the rainbow, right? And obviously the the rainbow's a circle. So how long has this leprechaun been waiting there? You know, <laughs> and well, this poem about this. You know, this, this leprechaun with a pot of gold. You know, and someone told they, they told her she was the chosen one, and that there'd be a, a prince coming along, or a, you know, a princess, or a weary peasant with a stick, and uh, she doesn't know that it's a lie, and all this stuff. And 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 I found, and, and I used that to 
pour all my real feelings into. Um, but that's just kind of how I do it. Um, and you can't, you can never tell a writer what they can and cannot write about, you know, because it, the, the, the part of the, the necessary freedom of being a writer is that you are free to follow your own passions and your own instincts. I wonder, since I've so monumentally failed to make them fight with each other, is there anybody who has something they would like to say, a question or, or a different point of view, or just something you want to tell us about the, what you think about the way you write, the way you read, or anything at all? Um, If you're addressing it to someone particular and can remember their name, that would be helpful otherwise. <laughs> I know that it's fantasy versus reality, but sometimes like there's a mixture. Like um, if I wanted to become a writer, but like the books I wanted to write about it was close to me, like as in reality, but it's not me, so fantasy. So what would I do about that one? No, that's exactly how it should be. That's exactly how it should be. And you're right, you're totally right that it's, you know, it doesn't have to be one or the other. I mean, I was working on a book for ages that was a, just a nightmare. It wouldn't, nothing would happen. It, I had this vision of my, my characters all sitting around being really bored, thinking nothing ever happens in this book. <laughs> and, then, and then one day, when I was just sitting there thinking, God, this is the worst book ever written, um, this uh, an invisible greyhound just wandered into my book, and it really was almost like that. I'd never met a greyhound before, but there it was. Suddenly, it was in my book, <laughs> and and that kind of mix of reality and and fantasy just made it all kind of come alive somehow. So, you know, the thing is, I was forty six when I wrote my first novel, and um, one of the reasons that that I didn't write for such a long time was because I was I'd sort of been brought up to to follow the rules. I mean, I was always rebellious, but I always figured that there was a set of rules that I never quite understood. And that that was true about writing, certainly. And that, you know, there were all these rules and that somewhere you could buy a book about the rules of how to write. And it was a big surprise to me to realize that there actually are no rules at all. You know, you make up the rules, and if you're clever enough, you make up rules that no one's ever, never, you know, done before. I think it sounds like you're on exactly the right track. I think maybe one of the reasons we're not having a big fight is because we're all, we sort of think what you've said is that the mixture of the real world <coughs> and then your dream life and your imagination, that's what writing comes from. Great question. Yeah, really good question. Um, the other side of the room? Yeah, at the back, up there. Um, I think the problem that I find with um, sitting down at a computer and just typing away is that I get to a certain point where I just have writer's block and I just, I don't know where I'm going and I don't know what I'm writing anymore and then I just trash it and yeah. <laughs> well actually I, I find not using a computer helps. Um, <laughs> I really, really, really recommend using a pen and a piece of paper and going into a room where there's nothing else except you and a desk and a, maybe a blank wall. I mean, I have a desk and all I can see is a wall. And I stick, I've got a board in it and it has notes about my book and, and that's it. And then you're not, you're not sort of connected to anything else. It's just you and the book. And then you can leave it there. And then when you sort of finish with it, when you get that writer's book, you can get up and you can leave it behind and go somewhere else where you can think about it and you can leave space. 
and then you can come back to it. But the problem with being at a computer is that you just sit there and you're kind of like, oh, God, I've got to write this, I've got to write this. But you need to step back. And I really find that, that not, I mean, it's a bit Luddite maybe, but I really find that, <laughs> that having that space uh, away from a place where you, which you normally, is, maybe that's it. Like, because you associate it with work, maybe you think, oh, what I'm writing is work, and you just kind of get a bit jammed up about it. But if you think about it as something different, then maybe that would help. Yeah, but also when you're on a computer, the minute you get stuck, you think, ooh, I'll just go on Facebook for a minute, <laughs> just for a second, you know, or, or Twitter, or, you know, eBay, or, you know, uh, iPlayer, or, you know. I mean, I spend most of my life doing that. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I, have, I, have a, I have a friend yeah. called John Ronson who said that uh, the only reason Charles Dickens wrote so many novels is that he didn't have broadband. Yeah. <laughs> and that's definitely some truth in that. But, you know, now there's some software called Freedom you can download, which... It says how long do you want to be free for you, in minutes. Oh, you put yeah. in 120 minutes, and it locks all of your email and internet access for for two hours. Fantastic. It's brilliant. Someone would find but a way I, around that. I'm sure. yeah, but I think I think um, it's it's so great to hear that you're writing. But I think you mustn't worry. You know, here you've got sort of four published writers, and we all have those moments of self doubt and thinking this isn't any good. But you mustn't delete it. There'll be something valuable in it in whatever you've written and you just got to keep on going and th and there'll be there'll be something that will come out of it um, but you know nothing is ever wasted yeah never yeah exactly never never ever throw anything away at all but um also it, remember like each new thing that you write is a, is a new encounter like it's it's like meeting a new person for the first time and some people you know you click with them right away like you you know and then uh, and then i mean i've i've read some poems that like literally just come out in 20 minutes and Fine, and then some that some that I've had to go back to like for a year or so, or, or I couldn't get the right word and it just wasn't working, you know. But so it's all right to be stuck. That's part of it. In fact, it's a good sign because it means that you're not you're not just you're not happy with just writing whatever. You know that there's something right and that you can get it right. You just haven't got it yet. So what that when you get stuck, it's good. It means you you know you're a perfectionist. You're you're a writer. That getting stuck is part of it because then then it makes you grow, you know, and challenge yourself. So, don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> just do what you're doing. Okay, I'm just going to a tiny little thing to that, which is I, I was um, teaching some creative writing courses recently, and I had a whole room full of grown-ups, and they were all saying, oh, we're all writing our books, and we get halfway through, and then we just don't know what to do, you know, we get really stuck, and it's really hard. And I wanted to go, look, you stupid people, slap, slap, slap. It is hard. Yeah. That's what happens. You get stuck. And, you know, what you do, it's like if you were digging a hole, you know. I always think writing a book is a little like digging a hole. You know, some days you just think, right, that's it. I've hit some stones. I'm not going any further. I can't get any further with this. I'm going to go eat, like, a whole box of Oreos. Uh, you know, uh, and, and that's, you know, that's kind of what you do. And then the next morning you wake up and you go, okay, back to the hole. You know, and you keep digging, and you keep digging, and eventually you make a little more progress, and you know. I think that often young writers have this idea that for, for kind of proper writers, it's all easy. Mm. Yeah, and no. These books just sort of flow out of them in this lovely, graceful way. It's not true, and it may be helpful for you to know that, that it's, it's, it is hard. I think another thing that is often a surprise to people, uh, you know, surprise to younger writers, is how it hardly ever comes out perfect first time. And that a lot of writing is actually being a little bit dogged and really committing to how you can make things better and better and better. 
you might have to go back over something and cut and take bits out and take bits away and go back to them. Um, I was going, to, but there are a couple of tricks also. If sometimes, if I'm really stuck with something, I I change it. I make myself think that I'm writing it as an email to somebody or writing as a letter to somebody. So at the top of the little bit page I'm on, I put dear or hi and the name of a close friend. And then I start writing as if I'm just telling the story to someone I know really well. And that might unlock something. If you try doing that, you say, you say I'm not writing this story anymore. I'm going to write this as, a, as if it's an email to a friend. But I'm not going to send it, obviously. It just tricks something in your head. Suddenly it might unlock, unlock something. Hmm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's really it's Back by the wall, yeah. Um, I personally think fantasy is way better than reality <laughs> to anyone that writes reality but like, with fantasy you can do anything nothing is wrong like you can make a man who dies and comes back to life and it won't just be ridiculous with reality you have to get every detail right like if you're doing a war book you can't write a man growing wings and then flying away like it has to be proper yeah. And like, <laughs> I mean, like, that's why I chose to write a fantasy book. So, anyway, but still, I mean, fantasy is everywhere. We can't avoid it. Like, but you could write a war book where somebody flies away in the middle. <laughs> why not? If they have wings, they can't. <laughs> if they have wings, well, they could grow them right then. It would have to be a plane. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you're talking to somebody. You're talking to somebody who wrote a kind of completely normal book with an invisible greyhound at the middle of it, and a girl who gave birth to a moose. And you know, everything else in the book is completely normal. Everyone's going, "Oh, what a lovely baby!" You know, now you've put that. Now you've yeah. put that idea into the room. I want to read that story. <laughs> yeah, I'm imagining the actual war, like in the First World War, when they're in the trenches and they're going over, and everyone thinks they're going to be killed, but then one guy grows wings and he yeah. flies. It's a, it's an absolutely brilliant idea. <laughs> About the baby moose book, that would be fantasy more than reality. That would be fantasy. Would be. But I think one of the things you, your friend in front summed it up brilliantly was, was saying, this is useful to make us all start a conversation. But actually what we seem to be agreeing is there is, it's a silly, it's a silly division. But I think it's, it's a brilliant Sorry, I just wanted to say the point about detail. You said you had to get detail right in reality books, but not in fantasy books. And I would completely disagree with that because a fantasy book has to be, in and of itself, complete and detailed. So any good fantasy book will have a system, a world, which is complete in itself, and the details in that book will be as real as the details in a in a book that is apparently real. There's a question in the middle. Yes, brilliant. Yeah. I totally agree with you. Yeah. <laughs> yes, we can all go home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, that was always fun. <laughs>
really well played. Although, although you've got a clever line. So uh, well, I'll have to think about it for some time. <laughs> 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 Come back if you. Um, well, we do have time. Got time, I think, for one, possibly two more questions. So we're back in the top corner. Um, for reality, I was just trying. To, what do we um, sort of classify as reality? Are we talking about completely non-fiction, so it's like a biography, or are we saying reality is something like Jodie Picoult, who writes about solely humans and just problems that humans have? What are we kind of classifying? What is reality to us? But I just wanted to clarify, sort of. That's a very good point. I think that's a really good question. And if we were if we were having a hardcore gloves off fight about fantasy and reality, we would have to start by defining our terms a bit, a bit more rigorously than we have. Because um, you're right that in a non-fiction <laughs> book, in a biography of someone, you can't make stuff up. Uh, but you do. Technically, but of course you yeah, do. everybody yeah. does. <laughs> I mean, um, every history, every biography has its own slant. You know, which stems from yeah. the the author's own own perceptions. And also, you can't know what happens in somebody else's life, especially if they lived a hundred years ago. Yeah. So, what do you do? You kind of put two and two together. You make ah, the reason he was out every night was because you know maybe he was in love with someone else, or you know you're guessing a lot of the time. So, you know, the line between fantasy and reality is is pretty thin. But then you sort you sort of start getting down to what is a fact and then that becomes sort mm. of even more difficult. You know, what can we actually say is real in this world? What can we actually say is true in there? Um, so that becomes much, much harder to... So you're, you're right. I mean, bookshops do divide yeah. books broadly yeah. into, you know, fantasy or, or reality yeah. as, as you described. Jodie Pickle wouldn't come as a fantasy. Uh, well, we could, I suppose we could classify it by saying um, the old word for a novel was uh, a romance. So in, tho in those days you had non-fiction, which was geography, history, science, blah, 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 and then you had romances, and they could be about real life. So that, that could be a way of mm. thinking about it. So a novel is a fantasy about real life, um, but then on the other side you've got non-fiction, uh, which is supposedly observable facts, solid facts, but, but then <laughs> skewed. <laughs> that's a nice thing. Will, will that do? Or have you got a thought or comment? But I mean, I, I would definitely file Jody Pico under um, under fantasy myself. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, if you really want to know about fantasy, ask five members of your family what happened over Christmas dinner. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, there, there is no such thing as truth, really. Uh, anyone desperate for a final question? I think we've got a minute for one more. We haven't had anything down here, so yeah. Confined space, like when no, when no one can ac get, gain access to you, or do you want someone to distract you? Because like you have in some way that that distraction will pro provide an idea for your book, or do you just think about it from the top of your head? That's a really interesting question. My favourite writing space ever was on a plane because um, I could just put my headphones on, no one disturbed me, all the lights were off, and I couldn't move. I was strapped in. <laughs> <laughs> It was just me and my book. I had to write it. There was nothing else I could do. <laughs> I mean, you get sometimes where, like, you know, um, I'm on a train or something, and I'll get an idea, and I won't have any paper, and so I'll have to write bits on my phone or on my hand, or you know. I mean, sometimes 
writing is sometimes a bit like being sick. Like, you don't want to, you just have to. You know? And, and, but, and so, kind of, it's like whenever you can't not do it, and wherever that may be, you know? Uh, Mark Haddon, who wrote The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, told me that he used to like writing. Uh, he first found it very difficult to write at home, and his place where he found the most inspiration was in a motorway service station. Every morning he used to drive off to the service station and go to the cafe there, the cafeteria. And I found I love having a little bit of hubbub around me, but I can't have, I can't have music in the cafe, because mm -hmm. my ear goes to the songs and yeah. goes to the words in the songs. So I like hubbub, but no music. I'm very particular about that. And I did have a kind of perfect writing place, but I was eating so much cake just to stay in there all day. Like to, you feel you've got to pay the rent on sitting there at the table that I couldn't sustain it over three years of writing a book. Anything you want to add to that? No, I mean. I'm the most distractible person in the world. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I usually don't start writing till four o'clock in the afternoon, even if I sit down at ten o'clock in the morning. And you know, I order stuff on eBay, and you know, I bid on things I don't even want. <laughs> I, I, had, I had to like, I had to write somebody a, a, an email on eBay recently saying, "My, oh, I'm so sorry, my seven-year-old son ordered this for my birthday, and really, I didn't want it at all. In fact, it'd been me, you know." <laughs> And I said, oh, we know things like that happen. But, you know, it's... I mean, the, the one thing about writers is that most of us do feel compelled to write to some extent. If only because, you know, we, I, my, I'm married to a painter, so if I don't write books that sell, we'll, we'll starve to death. <laughs> so, you know, that's, that's what motivates... You know, people say, what motivates you in your writing life? You know, starvation. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea where fact and fiction are in all of those answers. But um, I, afraid we, I think, are out of time. Am I right? I know there's a few more questions, but I think we're finished. Or one more question? Uh, I think we should go on. I think we should go on. So perhaps there, I know that there's going to be an opportunity afterwards for signing the books and a bit of milling about. So if you don't have to rush off, you can perhaps catch the writer's sorry, um, and ask them if you've got if you've got another question. Um, but I'd just like to thank all of our panellists and all of you for this fantastic conversation round. I think the only thing we probably all agree that we fight with is this, this idea that there is a versus, a versus yeah. and that somehow yeah. the two, whether it's inspiration, uh, reality-inspiring fantasy or the other way around, there is a huge interplay between the two and that the only thing everyone seems to have agreed on is that the authenticity of your voice and searching for the truth and taking risks and being brave in your writing and if that becomes what the bookseller would call fantasy or reality then so be it and go putting in an invisible greyhound if you get stuck we're now moving on to the next and the nerve-wracking part of the evening for those of you who've been involved in the first story competition uh, Philip Womack was the head of the chair of the judges, so the head of the chair, but the chair of judges, so I'm going to pass over to him. <laughs> Hi. Um, I'd just like to say what a pleasure it was to read all the entries, and they were of a really, really high standard, and I really, really did enjoy reading them. You all did very, very well. Um, the 12 shortlisted entries are all published in our anthology. There it is. Um, when I read your names out, if you could stay in your seats for the moment, and then at the end you can all come up and collect your prizes. So are you ready? The shortlisted 12 are Nicole Cheng. Nicole Cheng? 
Sophie Dyer, Loretta Frimpong, Rachel Goldwater, Aisha Hanif, Bethany Joe Holloway, Mohamed Mardadi, Denisa Mehmeti, Kenya Ose Akoto, Seyun Sonde, Sam Watchurst Govan, and Rosie Wilson. So a round of applause for all those shortlisted winners, please. Um, I'm now going to announce the winners, so if you could come up um, and collect your, uh, your prizes. Um, we couldn't choose between all of you for a first place, as you were all so good, uh, but you will all get a £50 book token and a wonderful Everyman book. So, uh, the Key Stage 3 winner is Rachel Goldwater. Stage four winner is Sam Watchurst Govan. Govan. And finally. The key stage five winner is Rosie Wilson. Just, uh, I'd just like to say that we're pleased to hear that our theme has inspired some other writers who, alas, were a bit too late uh, uh, to enter the actual competition. They're students from the Sacred Heart Roman Catholic School in Camberwell uh, who handed in some, issues, uh, some uh, stories last week. So well done to them, although they missed the deadline. <laughs> and uh, that's it. Thank you very much. shortlisted uh, students want to come up while everyone else go and enjoy the reception outside and we'll just get photos and we can give you some copies of the anthology that your work is printed in.